0: You're listening to In-Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. And now, the Riverdale Carnival presents The Archies. Take care of the kissing booth while we're singing, Sabrina.
1: Okay, everybody, here we go with our new hit record, Sugar Sugar!
0: Hello and welcome to episode 49 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Paneris. And this time around, we'll be taking a look at issue number 44 of the series, which even though it's not noted anywhere in the book, more than likely takes place in September of 1969. More on that later as I want to talk about the song that opened the show, and that is Sugar Sugar by the Archies. This song was the number one song of the year. Let me repeat that. In 1969, the year that brought us Woodstock... The number one song of the year, according to Billboard Magazine, was a bubblegum pop song by a band that didn't technically exist. The Archies were a band that was made up of the characters in the comic series of the same name, and in May 1969 released an album called Everything's Archie. This isn't necessarily something that many of us can laugh at or find weird. You'd see albums by fictional bands or characters from television shows from the 1960s all the way up through albums like The Simpsons Sing the Blues in the early 1990s and the uh, song How Do You Talk to an Angel by the band featured on the show The Heights was a huge smash in about 1992. The Archies, of course, consisted of the Riverdale Gang singing their songs, but in real life were a group of session artists that were assembled by famed producer Don Kirshner. None of the session artists ever went on to become legendary, although one of them, Andy Kim, did achieve some notoriety with his own song, Rock Me Gently, at that topped the Billboard charts in September of 1974. The Archies were actually a bit of a big deal in September of 1969 as they had not only had this song, but a hit Saturday morning cartoon on CBS, which is one of the reasons why the song became so popular. There's an apocryphal story about this song originally being offered to the Monkees and Mike Nesmith punching his hand through a wall in protest. But the dates of when the song was written and when the meeting supposedly took place didn't match up, and according to Wikipedia, Those who, who, quote, remember this incident probably are thinking of another song and are misremembering everything because of Sugar Sugar's popularity. Now, like I said, the nom number 44 doesn't necessarily take place in September of 1969, because while Doug Murray usually puts the month and year somewhere on the first couple of pages, it doesn't appear at all in this issue. And while the last issue didn't cover anything in 1969 at all, the next issue will take place in October of 1969, and issue 42 took place in July, so I'm just going to staple September on here, and in the historical context portion of the episode, I'm going to go ahead and cover both August and September of 1969. The issue, which is entitled Football Hero, came out on March 27, 1990 and was cover dated May of 1990. The cover is by Vince Evans and Jose Marzan Jr., and it shows the hand of a dead soldier next to a helmet with the name Rocket on it. Underneath the soldier's fallen hand is a newspaper clipping of a guy triumphing in a football game, and the headline reads, Football Hero Rocket Rossi Recruited by Uncle Sam. Well, Half of Rocket and all of Rossi are obscured by the UPC box, but based on the events of the story, it's easy to figure out what that says. It's a pretty good cover, and one that, while it doesn't necessarily give away any everything in the story, gives you an idea of what's going to happen. Plus, it's eye-catching, and the extreme close-up on the hand over the newspaper clipping creates more drama than, say, a full-body shot can give you. Our creative team on this is Doug Murray, writer Wayne Van Zandt, breakdowns Art Nichols, finishes... Phil Felix, Letters in Color, Don Daly, Editor, Tom DeFalco, Editor-in-Chief. We are in the jungle and Martini is giving a couple of new guys a tutorial on grenades. Miller asks Daniels what he thinks of the new guys and Daniels begins to wax poetic about Rocket Rossi, a college football great whom he saw do just about everything with a football in a game against Purdue. But, as the narration tells us, fear is a funny thing. It affects different men differently. Some fear death, some fear maiming, the loss of a limb or an eye. Some fears are intangible and more difficult to conquer. We see Rossi think that he's going to stay loose and not let on that. He's scared as he waits in the jungle with Martini to ambush enemy troops. Martini readies a grenade. As he pointed out to his new troops, nobody can tell where a thrown grenade comes from, and so as they explode, chaos. The NVA are totally surprised, their animals and carts killed and stampeded. Martini allows him no time to recover. He triggers his claymores, sending ribbons of hot steel cutting through the remnants of the Vietnamese lines. The platoon immediately follows with a withering hail of fire from their M16s, a fire that silences all opposition, a fire that comes from all weapons, save one. That weapon is of a Rossi, who is burying his head in the dirt, scared out of his mind and praying that nobody sees him. Later, as the sun lights the killing zone, they assess the situation. Martini says they all did well, except for Rossi. Jones asks him what's bugging him, and Martini says that he could have sworn that Rossi didn't fire a shot the previous night, but he can't be sure. He intends to find out, though, and tells Rossi to take the point. Fear is a stealthy thing. It starts small, creeping through the nerves, making every little sound louder, every moment more ominous. Rossi continues to walk scared through the jungle, wondering why they all hate him so much, wondering if they want him to get killed. Daniels, meanwhile, rambles on about Rossi's football field triumphs. A moment later, Rossi spots a VC with a water buffalo and panics. Fear, we're reminded, finally spins its way so deep that it gains total control. Fear can turn a man into a quivering mass of flesh, unable to move, unable to act, even when that action means survival for himself and those depending on him. Daniels continues to yammer on about what a great football player Rossi was, and they stumble upon the VC. They go from talking to action immediately and begin firing. Fear, the narration tells us, so strong that as Daniels, Miller, and the rest of the platoon come under fire, Rossi remains on the ground, hiding in the grass, trying his best to remain unseen, unnoticed, locked in place by a terror that has grown too strong for him to fight. The 23rd continues to pour it on and Martini calls in an airstrike, while Rossi continues to cower in the grass but then shows some sign of life, as even the worst of fears loosens its grip after a time. The body can only produce so much adrenaline. Then the brain slowly regains control. And so as the platoon fights on waiting for air cover, Rossi peers up and finds himself scant meters from NVA troops. He grabs what he thinks is a grenade and tosses it. The grenade goes off, but not explosively. Rossi, blinded by fear, has chosen the wrong grenade, one that spouts a plume of smoke, some that is quickly seen by newcomers in the sky. The spads make their strafing run. Cannons spit fire, chewing up the grass with the NVA troops. Still, the NVA fight back, firing their assault rifles skyward, willing to trade their lives for a hit on the VNAF fighters. All the while, Rossi hugs the ground, praying for invisibility, praying for his life. Praying and hiding. While a short distance away, Daniels is under the impression that Rossi was brave, calling in the fire so close to where he was in the grass. Martini, however, wonders differently. Meanwhile, as the Sky Raiders turn for another run, the Vietnamese begin moving and come across Rossi. The NVA soldier brings his rifle up, the muzzle aligning with Rossi's face, and is from the sky a final strafing run, one that riddles the last of opposition and provides cover for a man still paralyzed by fear. Minutes later, the platoon is cleaning up and making sure nobody's left alive. Rossi gets up still alive and is about to tell Martini the truth, but the other guys begin praising him for calling in an airstrike in his own position and saying that he'll definitely get a Medal of Honor for that. Martini says that he thinks the guy, the guys think he's a hero, and he wants Rossi to prove it to him, and he tells him to take the point. Later, as Rossi takes the point, he trembles at the fear that Sarge knows how scared he is and is trying to get rid of him. Danlus continues to yammer on about Rossi as a hero, comparing it to a similar incident he saw, and Martini wonders if he did the wrong thing. And Rossi's really alright. As Martini wonders at the point meters ahead, Rossi wonders too. Wonders if he has the strength to keep on moving. Wonders if he'll ever find the courage to fire his weapon. Wonder if he'll find a way to conquer his fears. And as the two men wonder, on their flank an NVA sniper prepares to solve their problems permanently. The sniper lets Rossi go because that's what he was taught and targets Miller. Firing but failing to take something into account. The target is Miller, and Mrs. Miller, who is bending down to pick up something he dropped. Martini notices the shot that was fired, and everyone begins firing toward the sniper's position. Rossi panics again, and Martini yells that he's got to throw a grenade into that machine-gun nest. The sniper, noticing Martini is giving orders, begins to target the sergeant. Fear, we read again, once it gains a grip on the person, is almost impossible to overcome. Rossi is indeed past the machine gun's line of fire, and in the grip of his fear he will do anything to stay that way. He will run away from his friends, his life, his self-respect, run for his life, run blindly until he slams into something he is too scared to see. Stunned, he falls earthward, his weapon firing accidentally, sending bullet after bullet into the air, bullets that find the sniper. He dies before he completes his own mission. His body catches in the tree he hid in, hangs in place until Rossi spots him and begins wondering why they can't all just leave him alone. But then he realizes he's got to get to them first. Fear. It can paralyze a man, change him, make him small in his own eyes. But let a man conquer that fear, just once, for any reason, and fear will never have quite so strong a hold of Rossi again. He crawls up to the machine gun nest and, realizing that his rifle is jammed, thinks that he can throw a grenade as well as a football, then lets close and gets close and lets one fly. The machine gun nest is completely destroyed. Minutes later, Martini congratulates Rossi on his throw and says maybe there is a hero in there someplace. Then he tells Miller to take the point. Rossi smiles. Hours later, back at base camp, Daniels invites Rossi to the movies, but he declines, wanting to get some rest. Martini, who stays behind, says, I know what you're thinking, son. They're scared, too. All the time. So am I. Everybody's scared. The trick is to keep going, even when you're terrified. He pulls something out of his bag and says, I got a little gift for you. So I'm going to show you when you don't have to be scared anymore. He hands him his helmet liner and says, Here, I had the houseboy put it on your helmet liner. We call it a short timer's calendar. Every day you just blacken out one of the boxes. One less day you have to be scared. When you get here, he says, pointing to number one. Well, that's the day you can stop being scared. Now come on, let's go down to the club. I think Armed Forces TV is showing some preseason game from Cleveland. Interested? Yeah, I'm interested, Rossi says. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Sometimes the greatest fear is that of being afraid. What's thence conquered? That was a long synopsis. Uh, it had a lot to do with the fact that uh, there's a lot of storytelling done through narration boxes, and I'll get to that in a few moments because I actually want to start with the art because unfortunately it's the weaker of the two elements this time around. I'm not going to put the blame on Wayne Van Zant here because he only did breakdowns, so I'm going to kind of lay it at the feet of Art Nichols, who's an artist I'm actually quite familiar with because of his works on the various Titans books in the early 1990s. Maybe I'm giving Nichols the short shrift here, but he always seemed to be the guy to come in when the regular artist wasn't on pencils. You know, whereas I'd be seeing a cover by Tom Grummet or Phil Jimenez or someone else, Art Nichols would be credited on the interiors, and why he wasn't horrible like some of the other artwork I had experienced during that period, he wasn't necessarily great. Serviceable, I guess is the most polite way to put it. I just feel that if this were the usual current team of Van Zant and Isherwood, this issue would have been a lot more detailed in places and a lot tighter. Plus, I wonder if Phil Felix could have added a bit more mood with the colors instead of presenting the story in such a straightforward manner. Because the issue is laid out very well, and Van Zant's breakdowns do give you an idea of how good this would have been if it were full pencils by him or someone else's doing the finishes. Now on to the story, which is one of the better ones that Doug Murray has written in this latest run of issues. I like the idea of the local hero or the football hero heading out to the Vietnam War and having to face the reality of the situation in which he's been placed. In fact, the cover of this issue reminds me of one of my favorite poems about the war, which is At the Vietnam Memorial by George Bilger. It goes like this. The last time I saw Paul Castle... It was printed in gold on the wall above the showers in the boys' locker room next to the school record for the mile. I don't recall his time, but the year was 1968, and I can look across the infield of memory to see him on the track, legs flashing, body bending slightly, beyond the pack of runners at his back. He couldn't spare a word from me, two years younger junior varsity and hardly worth the waste of breath. He owned the hallways, a cool blonde at his side, and aimed his interests further down the line than we could guess. Now, reading the name again, I see us standing in the showers, naked kids beneath his larger, comprehensive force, the ones who trail obscurely in the wake of the swift, like my shadow on this gleaming wall. I've been using this poem for a few years now in my sophomore English class because in three stanzas it shows the complexity of the war as well as its effect on a person. The contrast between the wall above the showers in the boys' locker room and the wall of the Vietnam Memorial, while not subtle, is powerful. And Rocket Rossi is very much a Paul Castle. He wants to owned the hallways didn't he and he was as daniel's incessantly reminds us a star a big star but what murray does here is something that authors such as eric murray remark and tim o'brien do so well in their novels and that is get inside the head of this soldier and talk specifically about the fear the person experiences if you'll remember in All Quiet on the Western Front, as Paul talking on more than one occasion about how soldiers, once they develop battlefield experience, also develop battlefield instincts, and that takes care of the fear that they might experience because they start thinking too much about their situation. O'Brien definitely does this, but he would also have caught up with Rossi after the war and have shown the effect the war had on him. We don't really get that in this story, of course, but... We we don't also get that very much in the series, at least until the death of Joe Hallen storyline that Chuck Dixon will write will start in starting in issue number fifty four, and some of the later issues that Don Lomax would write. I've noticed that in the last few issues, Murray has been relying a lot on the narration box, and I want to say it's a way of phoning in, but maybe not. And sometimes sometimes it definitely you know uh, it it definitely seems just kind of very very. Simple because it seems like it's an easy way for the writer to avoid a lot of dialogue and thought bubbles. But here, the constant narration about fear is something that adds some serious depth to the story. I mean, it's not at all subtle, and the irony that Rossi's the supposed hero who can't seem to keep himself together when in the field like this is laid on a little bit thick. Do we really need to hear Daniels Ramirez about all of Rossi's football glory? But Martini was one of the characters from the last group to come in that had always shown that he was steady and experienced and had a fair amount of wisdom. I like how Murray has him being able to see through all of the supposed glory that Rossi has, but is smart and subtle enough to have him not call him out on everything in front of the other guys. Rossi's transformation at the end is a logical one, and it doesn't just involve some sort of crazy Schwarzenegger-esque action moment he simply winds up doing what Martini had basically ordered him to do. He crawls up and he thinks about how throwing a grenade could be a lot like throwing a football after he comes to the realization that if he starts going on the offensive, maybe he won't be so scared. What Murray does in this issue is give us obvious growth in a new character, but also shows a little bit about Martini, who's always the smart old guy on the squad, but now is the leader and an effective one at that. I'll be back after this with historical context, letters, and ads.
2: Okay, I'm going to do the promo now.
3: Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo.
2: What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it.
3: Well, can on with it then.
2: Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The... Captain America.
3: Well, being dramatic there, aren't we?
2: Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off?
3: No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good.
2: Okay. You've seen the Earth's Mightiest Heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting.
3: Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one?
2: Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, Magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it. Go with it. Go with it.
3: Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show.
2: Oh, Oh. yeah. Okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films.
3: And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a whole film.
2: Oh, well, yeah. And
3: don't forget Spider-Man. He's not the King of but he's there.
2: Oh, okay. So, um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe.
3: Better. And where should they go, not see, this magical podcasty goodness?
2: New episodes can be found... Fa- <clears throat> do I have to do the voice?
3: Yes, you do.
2: Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad?
3: Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show?
2: Oh, yeah, Avengers, Inspirations, Podcast, Listen, and Stuff.
3: Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you.
0: Like I said, I'm going to cover both August and September of 1969 this time around because last time I didn't really get to talk about August because of the fill-in issue with the time jump. This information, is always, is called from a couple of sources, among them Wikipedia and the History Place. On August 4th, Henry Kissinger begins his first set of secret meetings with Hanoi and Paris. These would eventually fail because neither side could agree to any terms. Eight days later, on August 12th, the VC would launch 150 attacks on targets in South Vietnam. An incredibly important event takes place on September 2nd, 1969, and that is the death of Ho Chi Minh, who died at age 79. Here is the CBS Evening News report by Walter Cronkite.
1: This is the CBS Evening
4: News with Walter Cronkite and Charles Collingwood in New York, Marvin Kalb in Washington, George Siebertson in Saigon, Larry Pomeroy in Bethlehem, Jed Duval in Colorado
1: Springs, and David Cohane in Edgartown. Good evening. Our Moscow correspondent, William Cole, quotes informed Soviet sources tonight as saying that North Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh is dead. It should be emphasized that this is not official. The latest word from Hanoi is that the 79-year-old communist leader still is alive, but that his condition is grave and deteriorating. The unconfirmed Moscow report said that he died early today, Vietnam time. In recent months, Ho made public appearances only on rare occasions. In May, just after celebrating his 79th birthday, he showed up at a children's festival in Hanoi. And once again, he demonstrated the strength of his popular image as a father figure among the North Vietnamese. A few weeks later, Ho appeared at a Hanoi ceremony with Premier Pham Van Dong, Defense Minister Giap, and other top leaders to hail the establishment of a so-called provisional revolutionary government by the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. As for Ho, his history of poor health, connected with a heart condition, stretched over a period of several years. And there were reports that it finally reached the critical stage in late July. And then last night came the official word of his illness. And as in every other communist country, such communiques usually are not issued unless there is little chance that the leader will survive. The big question now is what impact Ho's departure will have on Hanoi's strategy in the war and at the peace talks. Washington has been busy assessing the situation, and we have a report from CBS News diplomatic correspondent Marvin Cowan.
4: After a series of hurry-up meetings starting last night, the administration has concluded that Ho's death will not significantly change Hanoi's policy on the war, neither at the negotiating table in Paris, nor on the battlefield in South Vietnam. But fearful of what they take to be the one chance in a hundred they could be wrong, officials are now trying to compose a new diplomatic approach for peace in Vietnam, to be presented in Paris as soon after Ho's death as respectability allows. No details are yet available, but it's known that some State Department officials will now press for significant and dramatic U.S. troop withdrawals. Enough to meet Hanoi's hint last night that such withdrawals could break the negotiating deadlock in Paris. These officials realize that the Pentagon, Saigon, and U.S. Ambassador Ellsworth Bunker are reluctant to go too far too fast, but many of them feel that Ho's death could represent an historic moment that must be tested. Morphin Cald, CBS
1: News, Washington. Charles Collingwood, our chief foreign correspondent and a specialist on Vietnamese affairs, will have some comments on the Hanoi developments later in this broadcast.
0: On September 5th, there is a former charging, there is the formal charging of Lieutenant William Kelly with six counts of premeditated murder with regard to his role in the My Lai Massacre in which 109 Vietnamese civilians were killed. September 4th sees the Chicago 8 trial begin in Chicago. You remember we saw some of the Chicago 8 a few months back when we had our issues surrounding the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Now, a couple of very, very important pop culture moments that have a tangential connection to the Vietnam War take place in August, and I thought I'd give them a mention. The first is August 9th, when followers of Charles Manson murder Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and her friends, Folger's coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, and Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring at the home of Tate and her husband Roman Polanski in Los Angeles, also killed a Stephen parent, leaving, leaving from a visit to the Polanski's caretaker. More than 100 stab wounds are found on the victims except for Parent, who had been shot almost as soon as the Manson family entered the property. The next day, the Manson family kills Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, wealthy Los Angeles business people. On August 15th through 18th, 1969, in upstate New York, what's considered the pop culture event of the 1960s takes place, and that is Woodstock. The festival, which is billed as three days of peace and music, features acts like Richie Havens, Joan Baez, Country Joe and the Fish, The Grateful Dead, Cretan's Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, Sly and the Family Stone, Joe Cocker, The Band, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, sha na and Jimi Hendrix. Woodstock has gotten plenty of coverage via film and television. There are a number of retrospectives you can seek out. Two that I recommend... Are the documentary Woodstock, which is basically a very, very long concert film, but is really, really well done and worth watching, even if it's just mostly musical performances. It's not very hard to find because it often shows up on cable. It's available on DVD. The second one is one that might be a little bit harder to track down, but if you can find it on YouTube, I'll post it. It's the 1999 episode of VH1's show Behind the Music that is about Woodstock. It's a pretty tight hour of television, and they do a very good job focusing not only on the music, but on the financial and logistical episodes that plagued the festival, which is something you don't often get when you see people of the Woodstock generation reminiscing about the festival. In coming this month. John Williamson of Charlottesville, Virginia, right in my backyard here. Wow. I have to look that up. Um John Williamson of Charlottesville, Virginia, 22901. It uh, says, the Nom appeals to me a great deal. The story and art are um, are interesting. However, I have a question. Why is it that when our faithful crew goes out on an ambush, or, or ambush, they usually manage to kill or all or most of the VC NVA, yet few of them are killed and returned? That couldn't have been the way it was. There's so little information about the Viet Cong and the NVA that it would be interesting to see an issue or two about the way they lived and fought. How about it? Doug replies, dear John, boy, how we hated that opening in the Nam." You make an interesting point about the final outcome of the mo- of most ambushes both ways. Keep in mind that if the VC-NVA found things going against them, they just left, vanished back into the bush, often taking their wounded and dead with them. The result in our storylines is they appear to all be dead. For our side, tremendous support, both with artillery and air power, gave us an enormous advantage. When we were really in the deal, we just called in a napalm striker and arty mission to help us out. Clear? As for our stories about the Vietnamese, we've done some in issues 7 and 22, and you can bet there will be more in the future, thanks to the interest, Doug. A, somebody whose name and address has been withheld by request from Australia says is a regular reader. He thinks it's absolutely fantastic. He has one problem. You never mentioned the Australians who fought in Vietnam. In fact, the one guy's time you did mention the Aussies, we arrived late to a rendezvous, even though we were on the APCs and the Yanks were out on foot. I know for a fact that the Australian contingent was much more reliable than that, and they were also good soldiers. I know that the Nam was a comic about the Americans who fought in Vietnam, but I would like to see something about the Aussies sometime in the future. Dear Sir, it's hard to acknowledge every trooper from every country who fought in the Nam. The offices were there alright, and they did a great job. Don't think that remark about their being late back in issue number one was meant as an insult. Troops were often late for rendezvous, especially if they were in the APCs. Those things were big, noisy, slow, and drew a lot of enemy attention. Rest assured, if I find an Aussie or a Kiwi outfit in the right place, they'll, f- they'll find their way to the NAM OK. Jacob Siskanski from Silver Creek, New York, writes in. He's, he's got a couple of questions. One, in issue 25, you portrayed NVA PT-76 tank attacking Khe That base was never assaulted by a large enemy force or by tanks. The Special Forces base of Lang they was, however, attacked by an enemy force very much like the one portrayed in the issue. What's the poop? In issue number 34, is number two, Major McCandles is supposed to be CIA, but is wearing U.S. Army tape above his pocket? Is he using that as a cover? And number three, I was wondering if you could do an issue about special forces. I was quite impressed by your issues about Rangers and LRRPs, and I feel that a greeny beanie issue would be excellent. Once again, thanks and welcome back, Mike. Um, Doug replies, one, the assault shown was actually the one on Lang Vey, which, as you mentioned, is quite close to Quezon and has been considered part of the same battle. Two, McCandles is part of Project Phoenix, U.S. Army personnel working for the CIA. Whichever one he is at this time is unclear, although it would appear to be Army. Three, Green Berets, I'll think about it. And Doug says he uh, welcomes Mike back. Um, Mark Myers of Westerville, Ohio says that he's been collecting the noms since issue 27. He's never been disappointed except for 40 and 41. He says, he's sorry to say, they were corny. They were too much of a joke like in issue 40, the thing with the radio, and 41 comic heroes. But the nom is still one of his favorite comics. Um, He says, sorry you didn't like numbers 40 and 41. 40 was designed as a way to show the River Boys at work, and 41 was an experiment of sorts to show what would happen if superheroes really didn't evolve in real-world situations try to keep such experiments to a minimum. If the readership doesn't like them, how about the rest of you? There is no NOM notes this month. There is a US Postal Service Statement of Ownership Management and Circulation and a Next Issue Box. Our ads probably a lot of the same. There's the, there's a ad for Contra and Snake's Revenge. Um, World ends tomorrow it's all your fault both games from Konami don't forget that this is Contra this is Contra or Super C no sorry it's Super C which was the sequel to Contra which was much harder than Contra and did not did not I say have the up up down down left right left right B, a start uh, code we have a two page spread of American entertainment it is a big warehouse sale you have Batman Digital Justice, a Planet of the Apes comic. Ape City rises again in an all new violent series. Oh, we gotta emphasize the violence in these ads, don't we? That starts 100 years after the nuclear devastation of the last film. Similar to Aliens, Planet of the Apes number one features stunning art and action packed storyline. With the production of a new ape in this movie this year, the series will be blisteringly hot. Highly recommended. A new. Apes production. I'm, obviously, that never got off the ground, but I did not know that back in nineteen ninety, ninety one, a new Apes movie was being rumored. I don't know if Scott Gardner or Chris Honeywell listened to this podcast. I might have to ask them if if they had ever heard of anything like that. Got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We got X Men, Batman Limited Edition button sets the Simpsons posters and t-shirts t-shirt and collectibles collectible figurines and all sorts of comic books let's see what's a really really valuable comic book under comic books at this point in time uh, Excalibur one was a $10 book Legends of the Dark Knight one through five the set was going for six ninety five. dollars Punisher War Journal number one, number six, because number six featured Wolverine. That was a seven dollar fifty cent book. Uh, so was Wolverine vs Hulk number one. All right, Bionic Commando from Capcom. Another TSR realms are yours to conquer, Forgotten Realms, Um, and and that kind of went with events D anD D. Uh, Mile High Comics has an ad, classic yellow background, and advertising emphasizing the Spider-Man Spirits of the Earth graphic novel. Uh, it looks like, dude. It looks like there's a slightly different bullpen bulletins this time around. Stan is just getting uh, um, giving props to the people in the bullpen and you know saying how terrific tom let's take a minute to tell terrific tom defalco and his sensational staff of the greatest artists writers editors letters colors and production people ever assembled at the riotous ranks of marvel them salute them anytime they need one they can count on me to be head cheerleader excelsior stan lee there's um apparently the uh, barber slates yuppies from hell had an excerpt in cosmopolitan more new releases coming up from everything from, we've got Robocop, Namor, Ghost Rider, Guardians of the Galaxy, the new warriors and the new Spider-Man comic coming out in 1990. And uh, winners. And then there's, there is a contest going on and it is this grand, the grand prize is you'll be our guest for dinner with the creative teams of one of the heroes of the nineties titles. The six creative teams will be flown to six different winning shops for store appearances followed by Dinners with the Winners. Participating creators, guys who do anything for a free meal include Todd McFarlane, Alan Grant, Lee Sullivan, John Byrne, Howard Mackey, Javier Salteres, Jim Valentino, Fabian Nicieza, and Mark Bagley. Hmm. And then Evan Skolnick, who is the assistant editor on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Avengers Spotlight, Robocop, Marvel Masterworks, The Scorpio Connection, uh, is your profile. We have the Double Dragon 2 ad that we've been seeing for a little while the subscription has the same one with the hulk there is the ninja gaiden lcd video game from tiger where it was just like you know i press the button and the guy has like one of two poses like those really really crappy lcd video games from the early 90s and the demon sword from taito um nintendo ad is on the back cover and that is it for issue 44 and episode 49. Um, usually the next e- episode would be out about two weeks from now, but I'm actually going to be taking a slight hiatus for about a month until probably the end of June. Um the a peek behind the curtain. I'm actually moving. Uh, not the podcast, just me. I'm moving, packing up the house and moving uh, at the very, very beginning of June. So as I record and release this, I'm going to be taking a break from podcasting while I get everything together and pack everything up and move everything and get everything set up again. So you'll be hearing from me again. We'll be back on a regular release schedule, probably around the second the the second to last week or last week of June. And we'll be going bi-weekly as we usually do all through the summer and through through the rest of the year. So and my next episode will be episode 50. Now I'm trying to get something lined up, something special lined up for that. I can't tell you what it's going to be because it's still in the works, but if I can get it to, to happen the way I want it to, it's going to be a great episode. Either way, check out the Facebook page. Um, I'm going to be revamping the show notes uh, coming soon. And um, and just check out the Facebook page for news about the next episode, and as well as the two true freaks Feed. Uh, thank you once again for listening, and take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics, the Nom, the Nom, and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to PopCultureAffidavit at gmail.com. InCountry also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at Facebook.com slash InCountryPodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the De Manza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to TrueFreaks.com and click the amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nam.